0: Open your Bibles to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. We're going to slip into chapter 20 in just a moment. But we need to begin there. One of the great mysteries that are not detailed in the Bible are the details of Christ rising from The grave. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but think of all the regulations we have in the law, all of the details we have of Daniel and his friends, all the details we have of Moses' life and Joseph's temptation, of all the details that the Lord of Revelation, the God of glory, chose to reveal in the Bible. Every one of them is pristinely and perfectly sanctioned, every crossing of the T and dotting of the I, and yet... The details that come to us about the resurrection are shrouded in mystery. In fact, we know very little about what happened in that cave, in that tomb. We only know about the results. We only know what happened afterwards. We only know what the report of an empty tomb was. I find myself, when I was reading all four accounts this week of the resurrection, wanting to be there on that Sunday morning peering inside that grave. What did that look like? What was that like? And yet, in a mysterious providence, God has said, it doesn't matter. There'll be time throughout eternity to ask those questions. What you need to know are the results and the consequences of Jesus being raised from the dead. What we need to do is kind of drop into where we left things off on Friday. You remember on Friday, we looked at the... The reality that the Lord Jesus was crucified by the Romans at the hand of the Jews, theologically at the bequest of the Father to pay for our sin, even who live centuries away from that time. Jesus has died. He's on the cross. One of the things that I really dislike is to see crucifixes, crosses with Jesus still on them. Jesus isn't on the cross. I like the symbol of an empty cross and an empty tomb. What happened right before the resurrection, right after the crucifixion? We pick that up, we find out in John 19, verse 31. Jesus has just died, then the Jews, verse 31, because of the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross, on the Sabbath. For it was a high day, not just any Sabbath, this was a Passover Sabbath, asked Pilate that their legs be broken, that they might be taken away. Now, without going into graphic medical detail, what would happen is if the criminal who was uh, being crucified had not uh, died by nightfall, uh, which was very unlikely. Very, uh, you could last on the cross if you were a strong man, sometimes days, but they wouldn't let someone over uh stay on the cross over over the sabbath so they would go and they would break the legs of the criminals what this would do would would disallow them to lift themselves up to take a breath because of the compression of pressure on their lungs they would suffocate in a matter of minutes this was ordered so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him this is a curious fact to me I don't know that I have any explanation for it, but you would think if you're going to do this, you would break the legs of these criminals one after the other in a straight line. Yet we know Jesus was crucified in between the two criminals. For some reason, they were, the legs were broken opposite them. Maybe there were two sets of soldiers who were working in the middle. We don't know, but it's a curious fact that their legs were, were broken before they came to the Lord. But coming to Jesus when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. We know from the psalmist that not a bone would be broken. This was to fulfill that prophecy. But one of the soldiers, who was making sure, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture, they shall look on him who they pierced. Bones weren't broken, soldier pierced his side. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews... Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. This is incredible to me. Joseph does this. Knowing that it was dangerous to be associated with Jesus. This is before he uh, understood the the power of the resurrection. He now becomes public. He now says, I am a follower of Jesus to Pilate of all people. Pilate granted permission, giving him the body. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night. We remember him from chapter 3 of John also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. Very expensive demonstration of his love. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen wrappings. That, that is a very specific Greek word. Literally wrapped him. You might probably have a picture of that by the old mummy movies was bound, wrapped it all the way around, tightly. These were small strips. That'll come into play very importantly in a few moments. They bound him, they wrapped him, linen wrappings, not just linen sheets, linen wrappings with spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, They laid Jesus there. Sabbath has come to begin on Friday night. They now have taken the body of the Lord and put it in a grave. And if you take the site that I think is the most likely site, which is at the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, this was only uh, a few yards from the crucifixion site. They put him in this tomb. They weren't finished dealing with his body. They wanted to honor his body. They wanted to honor the Jewish customs. They couldn't do that heading into the Sabbath, which would have begun on Friday night at sundown. So they said, we're gonna come back. We'll do this after the Sabbath, which would have been on sunrise on Sunday morning. Now we pick it up in verse one of chapter 20. Now, on that day, that first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. How early? While it was still dark. And saw the stone already taken away. From the tomb. It says already taken away because she was going to need some assistance to take it away, probably from the Roman guards to go and do the the custom of applying more spices and and doing the Jewish um, customary burial procedures. But she says it's already gone. Someone's already moved this stone that I could have never moved. Now, just a quick note on Mary Magdalene. No, I don't think anyone in biblical history or the history of biblical characters. Um, has suffered quite as much as, a, as Mary Magdalene in, in being referenced to with a bad reputation. She was one of several Marys who followed Jesus, several Marys actually who end up coming to see uh, the empty tomb, but few people in the Bible have suffered more damaging reputation than her. For much of church history, she was labeled as a prostitute. You may have even heard that, that Mary Magdalene was uh, one of the prostitutes that Jesus forgave. Read the New Testament very carefully. Read the gospel very carefully. There is no evidence that she was ever a prostitute. There was evidence that she had seven demons, Luke tells us, and the Lord delivered her from them, but no evidence, no reference that she was a prostitute. Luke tells us that Luke, uh, uh, that he was, she was delivered from Jesus specifically. From the torment of seven demons. According to Mark's gospel. She observed Jesus burial. In Mark 15. And here we find her as a witness. Now to the empty tomb. To the resurrection. Matthew 28 21. Mark 16 1. Luke 24 10. Group her with the other women. Who go to the tomb. But here in John 20. This is decades after Matthew Mark and Luke. Have been written by the way. Here in John 20. As John reflects and gives his account. He gives Mary Magdalene the role of. The first To discover the resurrection. First to report to the disciples. And the first to see the resurrected Jesus in this passage. She comes to the tomb early. Right before first light. The other gospel writers say early in the morning or right at dawn. The the light is just coming up over the horizon. It's that gray area right before sunrise. She was there with these other women with spices to anoint the body of Jesus and finish that which Joseph of Arimathea had begun. Now imagine her shock at seeing that the gravestone was gone. This would have been a large, uh, almost a pita-shaped kind of uh, a stone that would be rolled in a track across to cover a grave. It would have had stoppers. It would, it would have rolled into a groove that would have been so heavy that a woman or several women would not have been able to move it. What does she do with this? What does she do with this data? Verse two. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples who Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. She sees the empty tomb and she becomes a runner. She sprints. She runs to tell the disciples. The fact that she ran indicates the urgency of her heart. She goes straight to Peter and to John. We find out from uh, Matthew that she actually went to all 11 disciples, Judas having left them. Notice here for a moment there that she's still under the impression that Jesus is dead how do we know that? Because she believes that they, whoever they are, have stolen his body. It's just a matter of where the corpse had been moved. She's looking for the corpse so she can perform the Jewish ceremonies. I think it's interesting to, to ask, who are, who are they? I wonder who Mary was thinking about when she said, they have taken him away. Was it the high priest, the... the um, uh, the Jewish leadership? Was it the Romans? Who are they? We don't know who she indicated that they, she thought they were, but it does provide something interesting. By the way, she comes back to this theory of they in verse 13. We'll get there in a moment. In Luke's account, we find out that she made it all over to the 11 disciples. I think I said Matthew a moment ago. It was in Luke's account. Uh, but they were mostly doubtful except for John and Peter. That's important. Uh, Luke tells us that they doubted that anything significant was this. me even doubted that she had gone even to the right grave. Except for John and Peter. John and Peter respond. So, verse three, Peter and the other disciple, John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, the other disciple in his gospel here. John and Peter, the other disciple, John, went forth and they were going to the tomb. Now, if Sometimes the Bible has a, a sense of humor that I think is, is, uh, is fun to observe. I think this is one of those points. The two were running together. That's pretty clear, isn't it? And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Who's writing this? The other disciple. <laughs> he was faster than Peter and he lets us know that. I, don't, I think this was a sanctified description. I think this was a biblical description. But he nonetheless, nonetheless tells us, you know, we were sprinting over there, probably in Jerusalem. This would have been less than a half mile outside from where they were to where, they, uh, where Jesus had been buried. And they, they take off sprinting and John says, I beat him. <laughs> Verse 5. This is significant if you like biblical archaeology. And stooping and looking in. Now, just for a quick uh, uh, reference point, how many of you have been to Israel? How many of you have been to Israel? If you've been to Israel, you've no doubt gone to two supposed sites for uh, the, um, uh, the burial of Jesus. The garden tomb and the tomb at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. For a period of time, the garden tomb claimed to be the tomb where Jesus was laid. You, you might be interested to know that about 10 years ago, they, they changed that to say this was a tomb like the one that Jesus was laid in because all archeological evidence points away from that one and toward the one that, that the Catholics built the church on top of at the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. And one of the reasons is that, that we, we have a, uh, the notion that the garden tomb was not the one is I've been to the garden tomb I'm 5'7". I can walk into the garden tomb without stooping. In fact, there's, there's room above my head. You can walk right in there, look around. It's very uh, voluminous. You can, you can have uh, uh, several people sit down there. And yet the tomb at the Holy Sepulcher is small. It's very small, less than three. You have to get down on your knees to peer into, to stoop, to look in. They stoop and they look in. Both John and Mary, we'll see later, are said to have to stoop to look into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there. Remember, I told you, remember that word wrappings? That's not the word sheets. Um, don't waste your money to go see the Shroud of Turin. That's not how Jesus was wrapped. He was wrapped as in a mummified sense. They were wrappings. That's what the word means, wrapped around. But he did not go in. What's interesting here is that it would have been hard to imagine that someone would have stolen the body of Jesus after unwrapping it. Now just put yourself into the conspiracy mindset for a second. If you were going to steal the body, it would be unsanitary. It would be a little bit gross. It would be uncomfortable. Wouldn't you just think to take it wrapped up and go away with it? Yet the wrappings are still here. We find that when Lazarus rose from the dead, remember it. there's that, that funny instance again, it says he, he walked out still wrapped up. Jesus came right through those wrappings in the same way that he will show up inside walls without opening a door. They would have not have stolen Jesus' body and Walked through the streets with it exposed. Verse 6 And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered, that's John following him, and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And this is a curious fact we've talked about before, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. If you are going to steal a body, Would you say, hang on, before we go, guys, let's fold the face cloth. Let's just make sure, the the wrappings will just lay here, but let's fold up the face cloth. It's a curious fact. I don't know what that means. The Lord makes up his room. The Lord makes his bed. I've tried to tell my boys that, but anyway, he was uh, with great care, either he or the angel rolled up the face cloth and put it very neatly in a place by itself, somehow separated from the rest. Verse eight, so, The other disciple, John, who had come to the tomb first, also entered and he saw and believed. It was a shallow belief, as we'll find out, but he did say something supernatural is going on here. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping is this hard to imagine were you and i had you and i been there we would have likely been in this same state we sorrowful not only have you lost the lord now they've taken whoever they are have taken his body not all is lost all is lost And so, as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. She's only seen it from the outside. The the grave uh, stone rolled away. Now she, after John and Peter leave, she goes in and she looks in. But something different happens here with Mary than happened with John and Peter. She looked in the tomb and she saw two angels. Angels. In white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. I think it's significant that they were sitting there. You can only sit in this tomb. It's only three or four feet high, and they may have been sitting Indian style. We don't know that they're sitting there. We're at the head and at the feet. What's also significant is they weren't there a few minutes ago. And she didn't see anybody walk in. It tells us a little bit more about the ministry of angels being able to appear when the Lord wants them to. All the gospel writers say that they were, sitting, in, that they were uh, sitting clothed in white. We've talked about this before. There was no bleach in the ancient Near East. The, 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 the whitest quotation marks you could get something would have been dark beige. For something to have been white like this would have been... Quite remarkable, and the gospel writers all say angels showed up in white. One sitting at the head, at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman. Now, you got to be careful when you see this word woman. It, they're not saying woman like uh, uh, in a, in a deriding fashion. That would be the same as us saying ma'am or miss. Miss? Why are you weeping? says she was sitting outside weeping and now she brought her tears in with her, stoops down, gets on her knees, looks in and she's still weeping. Ma'am, miss, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they, here's our they again, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. She still believes Jesus is dead. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. Didn't know that it was Jesus. Can you just pause on verse 14 and think of the theological, the historical ramifications of that simple statement? She turned around and saw a man who a few hours earlier had been crucified, confirmed dead by the Romans, and put into a grave. She saw him. Now, at this moment, she did not know that it was Jesus. Lots of speculation. Why didn't she? Some speculate, well, because he looked so brutal on the cross that she would not have recognized him now. She had just seen him earlier in the week. I don't think that's a good explanation. Some suggest that um, that he was uh, uh, um, uh, in his post-resurrection uh, state, so she wouldn't have. Re- I understand that, but I think he was—he was probably cloaking himself. There may have been a hood. He was—he was just being incognito for her to give her some comfort in a moment. Jesus said to her, "Ma'am, Miss, Woman, why are you weeping?" Then he adds something the angels didn't add. Whom are you seeking? Now we find out what was going on as Mary Magdalene had no doubt told John the stories later in years. She's telling it over and over. John knows what she was thinking and he records what she was thinking at the time. She says, supposing him to be the gardener. How do we know that? I'm sure Mary Magdalene and John had many conversations. I'm sure all the disciples did after the events of this time. She thought it was the gardener. She said to him, sir... Who's the they? She, this may be one of the they. If you have carried him away, please tell me where have you laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her one word. It was her name, but the way it was spoken, the voice in which it was given. The tone in which she was articulated was unmistakable. In one word, Jesus said to her, Mary. I don't know the tone of that statement. Was it Mary? Was it Mary? Was it Mary? I I don't know how it was said. However it was said, look what happens. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. It's very significant that John says it was Hebrew, not Aramaic, which would have been the the lingua franca, the way they had spoken before. This was a tone of reverence. Something instantly and intuitive happened to her where she used the Hebrew language to talk to him. It was so significant that John records it. Rabboni, teacher. Now, what happens between verses 16 and 17 is not hard to figure out. The Greek word says, stop grabbing me. Stop hugging me. Stop clinging to me. So what do you think happened between verse 16 and 17? She runs to him. She embraces him. You're you're alive. This is a moment of incredible revelation for her. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, lots of speculation on why Jesus said, Look, no post resurrection hugs here. Uh, Was he being unkind? No, I think he was basically saying to her, Don't make too big a deal out of this, because I'm only going to be here for a little more than a month. Then I'm going back to heaven. This is not it. This is not the new kingdom, the new heavens, the new earth. This is, stop clinging to me. I have not ascended to my father. Then you can cling to me in faith and love in a way that's even more superior than the way you're doing to me now physically. He says, but I go to my brethren to say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. Now verse 18 is easy to understand. Mary Magdalene came I love this the way the English says announcing to the disciples literally yelling at the disciples The word is preaching to the disciples She came announcing to the disciples I have seen the Lord Now put yourself in their togas for a minute, okay? Mary Magdalene shows up and says I have seen Jesus. Remember the one who we knew, who was crucified, who is dead, who was buried? I've, I've seen him. And she tells them the things that Jesus had told her. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, we have to stop there because let's do some... Sanctified speculation. All of this happened very early in the morning, daybreak, right? And you got all day with very little uh, in, uh, information on what's happening, and now we're at night. I don't think Mary made that announcement once. <laughs> hey, I've seen the Lord. What's for breakfast? I think all day there was this. Tell me again. No, your shit was the gardener. No, was who is this? What did he say? Are you sure? What did he look like? There was this. Had to be over and over. This really. This telling and the retelling. So John says. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, Sunday night, when the doors were shut where the disciples were, why were they shut and locked? Because of the Jews, for fear of the Jews. They just saw what they did to Jesus. They had a good reason to be afraid. They were associated with him. I don't have any way to explain or preach or exposit this next phrase. I I just gotta read it, okay? Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. So get the scene. It's that day, Mary's telling them, John and Peter have no doubt said it was empty. I didn't see a gardener who end up being Jesus, but the tomb was empty. All of this trauma and drama, and you can imagine their fear, then that night they get together and they close the door and they lock it. This probably wasn't a a, a town hall. This was probably a, a small dwelling um, uh, the the door would have been easily locked, very secure, especially with that many people in there. And Jesus shows up. No knock. No doorbell. He just is there. He materializes. Can you imagine your response? Because as you imagine your response, can you now understand Jesus' words? Peace be with you. That makes a lot of sense. I would have been in a little turmoil as well. And when had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. If there's ever an understated sentence in the Bible, here it is. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. You think? So Jesus said again to them, peace be with you. It makes sense that he would be saying peace, which is a way of saying calm down. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. He immediately goes to the commission, immediately goes to the mission, immediately goes to the task. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. By the way, that's in direct reference to their ministry that they're going to have. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. He's just, he's just saying, you are acting on my behalf as, as one who has the good news of the gospel now. But we find out something <clears throat> At this point in the night, it was it was probably the, the women and ten disciples. Why? Because Thomas, verse twenty four, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Wow! I wonder where he was. What was he doing? The eleven were together earlier, and now he's gone. Did he go get something to eat? Did he go get a meal for the disciples? We don't know, but he wasn't there. The Lord knew he wouldn't be there, which I think is why he came when he did. Because watch what happens. So the other disciples were saying to him, Thomas finally comes back. There's no uh, indication here of when Jesus left or if, if he just disappeared. We don't know. I doubt he used the door. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and I put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Don't be too hard on Thomas. We just found out when the Lord came, what was the first thing he showed the disciples? He showed the other men the exact thing that Thomas says, I'd like to see that. And a week happens between verse 25 and 26. Strange gaps, aren't they? Because after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. I love the fact that Thomas is still there. Can you imagine those conversations? Thomas, no, it really was him. We did. We saw his hands. We saw his side. That which you want to see, we we actually saw it. And he's like, you know, trust and verify. I'm going to verify I have to see it with my own eyes. Jesus waits a week, eight days. He waits eight days. And Jesus came. The doors having been shut, same scenario, and stood in their midst and once again predictably says, calm down, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, this is significant. Do you believe that Jesus is God? As such, especially in his resurrected um, uh, body, do you believe that he has the exercise of omnipresence and omniscience? You say, I don't know how that works. Well, Jesus knew what Thomas had said and he wasn't there when Thomas said it. Because he gets ahead of Thomas' uh, uh, request. Thomas said, I won't believe unless I have this, this corporeal experience with Jesus. He says to Thomas. Thomas doesn't say, I need to verify. He says to him first, reach here with your finger and see my hands. He didn't say that to the disciples, the other ones. He just showed them. He knows Thomas's doubts. And can I just say, if you and I had been there, we would likely have had her own reach here with your finger. see my hands and reach here with your finger and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing the the greek is really stilted here and this is the english kind of brings it up don't be unbelieving So interesting way of saying something it says that the negative and the positive don't be unbelieving be believing stop unbelieving and start believing We have no indication between verses 27 and 28 that Thomas touched the Lord. He may have. We don't find out. But what we do find out is what he says. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my, say it, God. You can talk about Thomas' doubting all you want I would rather talk about Thomas's affirmation. He goes straight to the deity of the Savior. My Lord, which they had all said, Rabboni, Master, Teacher, and my God. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? What an amazing statement. If you're one who marks theological observations in your Bible, you can mark this as proof again of Christ's deity. My Lord and my God. Now, all of that was introduction. To get to verse 29. Jesus talks about us. Not Thomas, not Mary, not John, not Peter, not the other disciples, not the 500 who rose from the dead. Jesus says... Because you have seen me? Have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see yet believed. That's us. That's us. Peter says, though you do not see him, 1 Peter 1, you love him. Forever setting up, the reality of our experience with the living, resurrected Savior as one that sees and understands, loves and cherishes Him by faith and not sight. First Corinthians twelve, excuse me, fifteen, verse twelve and following, Paul goes in this great explanation that says, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, we of all men are be, to be pitied for putting our faith in such a ridiculous religion of a crucified Messiah. But in verse twenty, he says he has been raised. So, the question is Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe that Jesus not only died for your sins, don't let this sound blasphemous, believing that Jesus died for your sins is not enough to have the gospel. Paul says you have to have the fact that he rose from the dead to have the full gospel. Do you believe? Will you you believe? This is incredible! I mean, go, t- take our Christian heritage away if you've been a believer for a long time. Try going out, stopping a car out here and say, I know someone who died, who was buried, and is now alive again. Paul told the Corinthians that when you say that, the world will call you foolish. Is your faith rested upon a living resurrected Savior who sits at the right hand of God, alive right now. If Jesus is alive, everything changes. Everything. I don't know where all of your hearts are with respect to the gospel, with respect to the Lord, but can I encourage you that God's sweet providence has brought you here today to hear this passage. Do you believe? Will you believe? Because if he is Lord Raboni, teacher, Lord and God, he deserves our lives. And there's nothing, nothing. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? There's nothing here that is as wonderful and magnificent and satisfying as a relationship with God. Jesus, who's alive, who's alive, who is alive. Father, we are amazed again at this story. We hear it year in and year out. We hear it so often in our Bible readings. Cause us to be amazed each time we come to the living reality that you're alive. That we have... We have bowed ourselves to a living hope, as Peter says. Our hope is alive, because our hope is you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your obedience to your Father and dying on behalf of us sinners who would believe. Father, thank you for the sacrifice of your Son, for sinners such as us, and for demonstrating your own love toward us and that while we were yet in that state, Christ died for us. Make this a day of celebration. Lord, make this a day of salvation for some who may not know you, for any who don't understand. And cause our faith to be rested on the living hope that the tomb is empty. In Jesus' name, amen.